Well, good morning, Gateway. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Dean Salami, and I have the great privilege of bringing the message today. Now, have you guys been mounting the the primaries? (laughs) Well, thanks to the media, you you can't seem to escape it, right? There's one thing I noticed, though. This year's primary seems to have a very different tone to it. Is it me, or is there a lot more conflict in our politics today? Not sure if I've ever seen this before, but I've seen so much jockeying for power, and I don't know if, in recent memory if you guys have been seeing this. Now, I bring this up because I see it as a reflection of what is going on in our culture and as well as the rest of the world. Now, here at home, we have a rise in social conflict. The ever-growing threat of ISIS brings religious conflict. The consequence of all this? We are seeing unprecedented violence, both here and abroad. Now, allow me to focus our attention on what is going on here at home, because this most directly affects us. One example of our social conflict is the increase in racial tensions. It seems to be bubbling over. And what was once thought to be an issue of a bygone era has proven itself to be a very real and present danger. The level of violence in both the perpetuation and the retaliation is alarming, to say the least. Now, of course, many are asking the obvious question, what can be done to stop this violence? Some feel new legislation is necessary in the form of gun control, as well as more training for our law enforcement. Others feel they simply need to take matters in their own hands and fight back. Are either of these options really the answer? Are we even asking the right questions? How can we deal with the violence if we do not first deal with the conflict that is causing the violence? Let me ask it another way. How does one who is devoted to God deal with mounting conflict? You know, it's not enough for us to simply recognize there's a problem. We cannot be captains of the obvious. I believe that God has something for us today, and we're going to be addressing just that. Now, please keep in mind, I am not suggesting an absolute solution. What I am suggesting is a proper way to actually address it. Okay? Follow me so far? Okay. Now, I'm interrupting our regularly scheduled program, okay, to bring you this message out of our intended order. We're going to skip to 1 Samuel 24. And we're going to turn there, if you will. If you don't have your Bibles, it should be on the screen. Okay. But before we go to 1 Samuel 24, let me briefly discuss what happens in the previous three chapters since Ed spoke to us last week. Now, last week, Ed walked us through chapter 20. This is when Saul made his intention to kill David, very clear, his son Jonathan. Jonathan warns David and advises him to run away. Saul steps up the conflict, though. He learned a priest named Ahimelech helped David, and he accuses the priest of conspiring with David. And Saul has all the priests in the city called Nob. He has all the priests wiped out. If that were not enough, Saul destroys the entire city. Men, women, children, and even the cattle. It's funny how Saul uh, couldn't do this when God ordered him to, but to fulfill his own purposes, he had no problem at all. Only one person survives this attack, Ahimelech's son. And he flees the slaughter and takes refuge with David. 
David feels he is responsible for what happened and promises to protect the man. But look at what Saul did in his pursuit of David. Now, on another instance, the Philistines attack a city in Israel called Keilah. David defends the city, and that city betrays him to Saul. Saul finds where David is, and he basically is able to surround David. And just as he was closing in on David, he would have surely been able to wipe David out. But just then, Saul got the news that the Philistines were attacking in another part of the kingdom. So Saul stops his pursuit of David to go deal with the Philistines. A brief respite for David and his men, who at this point are numbered 600. It is clear that killing David is a top priority for Saul. He raises the level of the conflict exponentially. He wipes out an entire city to show his resolve and his willingness to pursue David wherever he is. These circumstances make what happens next so incredibly astounding to me. As we follow the unfolding drama, I want you to be mindful of three things that we see about David. His attitude, his approach, and his appeal. Let's make our prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for this time that you've granted us. How appropriate it is, Lord God, that we sung about grace. For in these times, Lord God, how desperately we need it. But we as your people, we need to be able to do something with the grace you have bestowed upon us. And with what we see going on in our culture, Lord God, we are asking that you empower us. So we turn to your word this morning. and We ask that you show us something from there. Prepare each heart to hear what you have to say and empower your servant now to communicate to your people effectively. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have your Bibles, won't you rise with me as we read the first seven verses of 1 Samuel 24. Now, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took, his, took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to, to relieve himself. <laughs> First of four skins, and now I'm relieving himself. Okay. Um, how about we just say that Saul was vulnerable? You guys okay with that? Amen? Amen. Okay, very good. All right. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, he, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscious for having cut off a corner of the robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. You may be seated. Now, Saul returns from dealing with the Philistines and learns of David's whereabouts, and he takes off after him. He brings with him 3,000 men. For those of you who keep keeping a score at home, David is outnumbered five to one, okay? But in route, Saul makes a pit stop in the very cave where David and his men are. Saul is very vulnerable here, and David's men sees this as a gift from God. Now is your chance to kill your enemy. And David creeps up slowly, and instead of killing Saul, he cuts off a corner of his robe. As soon as he does, his conscience bothers him. And in an incredible statement, David says, he cannot do this. The Lord forbids me to do this to my master, 
and his anointed. I cannot lay my hand on him because he is the Lord's anointed. Now, could you imagine what his men must have been thinking right now? David, are you serious? Are you kidding me right now? Uh, Newsflash, David, your master and the Lord's anointed is trying to kill you and us for that matter. What's wrong with you? David gives him a sharp response, and he's real quick to the point. No one is to touch the king. Now, with that, David has the last word, but his attitude is very, very clear in this. He will respect his king and the Lord's anointed and not move to kill him. Notice, David's conscience moves him and not peer pressure. His conviction of what is right and not his circumstances tempers his actions. He sets the standard for his men and holds them to it. Can I say that again? David's conscience moves him and not peer pressure. His conviction of what is right and not his circumstances tempers his actions. He sets the standard for his men and holds them to it. No one touches the king or you answer to me. Now, here's where I'm supposed to give you some powerful personal illustration of how this principle has worked out in my life. I'm supposed to do some ancient Jedi preaching mind trick on you and leave you thinking, wow. But the truth is, I I can't. I can't for two main reasons. One, I've never known this kind of conflict in my entire life. And to be honest, I hope I never will. But the reality is, I might. You might based off of what we see going on today. Now, the second reason, David's attitude reveals an area I think I need to grow in. Did you hear what what David said about Saul? He is my master and the Lord's anointed. He did not look at Saul based off of his actions or how he has been treating him, but who Saul is to David and who Saul is to the Lord. In other words, Saul's life matters. I don't know about you, but David really forces me to re-examine my own attitude because his was so shocking. See, I'm quick to judge a person by their actions and how they treat me. i quicker still to retaliate. But David shows me how shallow that is. He reminds me of the inherent power of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son... So human life matters to God, all human life. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. Now, despite our actions, God still values our lives and wants to save us. We should praise God for this. Amen? Now, David is not just about attitude here, okay? His attitude compels much more from him. He lets Saul go. And the next thing he does is truly intriguing. Now, all David had to do was to keep quiet, and Saul would have gone about his merry way. But that's not David's style. Let's take a listen. I'm going to read from verses 8 through 15. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen to when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, 
but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of robe in my hand. I cut it off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. In an absolutely ridiculous move, David decides to deal with the conflict head on. Now pay careful attention to his approach. He goes after Saul and calls out, My Lord the King. And David bows himself and prostrates himself before Saul. But look at David's posture. This is not simply an act of respect. David is leveling the playing field. He just gave up his advantage. Saul didn't know he was in the, in the, in the cave. But he, by giving up his advantage, he made himself just as vulnerable as Saul was just moments before. What is at risk is not just David's life, but the lives of his men as well. Now remember, he's outnumbered five to one, but advantage is not what's on David's mind. He needs to speak to his king. The only way to end the conflict is to give up advantage and talk. Now let's not think for one second that by giving up his advantage that David is being weak. Far, far from it. He is showing incredible strength. We can see that he, as he puts his protest forward, he asks Saul, why is he believing the reports that he, meaning David, means Saul harm? Now, there are no known records or, or reports of anyone saying this about David. So what we know, though, is that this has been going on in Saul's head. His paranoia has been driving this. And this is what David is addressing. But notice the skill that David exhibits here. He does not judge Saul for his actions, but he does begin to question him about his actions. And David does something impressive. He knows he hasn't done anything wrong to Saul, nor was his intentions ever evil toward him. But now that they are face to face, David takes the time to address the problem in Saul's mind. He provides proof of his innocence. It's like court is in session. David is the defense attorney. And listen to how he lays out his case. Let's look at verse 10 again. This day... You have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you in my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. David is not looking for consideration of the facts. He is actually looking for a summary judgment in his own favor. The Lord, David says, delivered you in my hands in the cave. You know when you were vulnerable? There when you were vulnerable, my men urged me to kill you. Instead, I spared you because you are my Lord and the Lord's anointed. Now, this proof is staggering. Let me rephrase what David is saying here. When you were vulnerable, I did not take advantage of you. When I had power over you, I did not exercise that against you. Just in case you don't believe me, I have this piece of your robe in my hand. 
that I cut with this knife, and you didn't even know. This should be ample proof that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or any rebellion against you. Yet you hunt me to take my life. Now this is a clear indictment against Saul's actions, but it, it again stops short of pronouncing judgment. David leaves that to the Lord. He says, let the Lord judge between us and let him avenge me of the wrongs you have done to me. But I will not harm you. David goes so far as quoting an old proverb, from evildoers come evil deeds, so I will not harm you. But David is not just saying he's not an evildoer. He's showing his absolute resolve not to kill Saul. David meets Saul's resolve to kill him, and he matches it with his resolve not to kill Saul. Who is this guy? David is ridiculous. David is devoted, though. Now, please do not miss David's appeal, because it's important. Did you see how he addressed Saul? He referred to him as father. David made it personal. He makes the relationship the focus, not the conflict. Do you get that? He made the relationship the focus, not the conflict. He reinforces the importance of the relationship with a promise not to, uh, to harm Saul. You do realize how absolutely countercultural this thinking is, right? David has clearly indicted Saul of wrongdoing, but leaves judgment to the, in the hands of the Lord, and he goes on to say that no matter what you have done or what you will do, I will not harm you. Now, David is not done, though. He speaks to Saul's position. This last volley at Saul is much more than David simply humbling himself when he refers to him as a dead dog and a flea. This is not him humbling himself. What he is reminding Saul of is that his position demands more from him than his behavior has been displaying and that the Lord will be the judge and reward accordingly. You are the king of Israel and you're chasing after me. You are better than this. And with that, David concludes his closing arguments. But now it's time to hear from Saul. Let's read from verses 16 through 22. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good that you did to me, the Lord delivered me in your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I'll know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now, you know, the first time I read that as I was preparing for this, I really wanted to make fun of Saul again. I wanted to call him Daffy. I wanted to call him Looney. But then I read the passage again. Now, David has been speaking to Saul for at least five, maybe ten minutes. And he's asking, is this your voice? You would think that he may have recognized that in the five to ten minutes that he was talking. But did you catch the last part of his question? He calls David his son. 
In response to David referring to him as father, he replies by calling David his son, and then he weeps aloud. Saul lets his guard down completely. David broke through. By confronting the conflict, David creates space for a moment of clarity in all of Saul's madness. Up until now, Saul was bent on killing David and referred to him only as his enemy. But now, in this moment, David is his son. And in front of his son, he allows himself to be incredibly vulnerable. Notice the two things that Saul does here, though. First, he acknowledges his wrong. Let me reread 17 through 19 for you. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You've just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me in your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. Because of how David went about this and the powerful argument that he made, Saul is able to confess his wrong and feel safe in doing so. That's pretty powerful. Because of the way David handled this and the powerful argument that he made, Saul is able to confess his own wrong and feel safe in doing so. Now, the second thing that Saul does here is that he accepts the truth of David's rule. This is the first time we see Saul acknowledge. Now, we know from Jonathan's report that Saul already knew David was going to be king. But this is the first time we see Saul actually say it. Okay. Here, in this moment, in a clear state of mind, Saul accepts this as truth. He said that the kingdom of Israel will be established in David's hands. The way David handles himself here helps Saul see that not only David will be king, but he will be a good king. Now, I cannot stress how powerful this is, at least to me. Would to God that whenever we are in conflict, that our end goal will be this moment, this moment that we're seeing with David and Saul. Here, God gives us an alternative to power jockeying and violence. He gives us a vision of reconciliation. That is the only true remedy for the conflict, and this is the call on our lives. Paul the Apostle saw this. Let me read for you what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Now listen careful because I find this interesting. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You see what David has done? He is living the example. He is trying to reconcile with Saul. Now, can I explain the power of this in a different way? Because I'm sure not all of you may be getting this. We as believers know the greatest conflict that is going on today is not between political parties. 
It's not with ISIS and the rest of the world. It's actually with God and mankind. Jesus Christ was God's answer to the conflict. So what David does with Saul is but a shadow of what God did for us through Jesus. See, Jesus comes to us with the message that God loves us and wants a relationship with us. His approach to this was far more powerful than David's. He became one of us. And he made himself so vulnerable that he was born as a baby. But, like Saul, we did not appreciate what Jesus did for us. So Jesus was so intent on proving how much God loved us and that he let us kill him. Of all the miracles that Jesus did, none was more powerful than the resurrection. See, Jesus let us kill him. And when death grabbed hold of Jesus, three days later, Jesus said to death, let me go. And death said, yes, Lord. And he rose from the grave to come back to tell us and say, apparently you guys didn't get it. God loves you and wants a relationship with you. Death can't even stop that. Amen? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most powerful proof of God's intentions to us. And even though you killed my son from God's point of view, I still love you. And I want a relationship with you. Because of what Jesus did, he created that space for us. A moment of clarity in the madness where we can acknowledge and accept his rule in our lives. Amen? Okay, now let me wrap up. I hope you see the answer to the question I posed earlier. How do people devoted to God deal with mounting conflict? We confront it. We confront it with the purpose of reconciliation, not violence. We seek to create space for moments of clarity, always keeping in mind the inherent value of the people that we may be in conflict with. Only there can conflict be properly dealt with. And this is uniquely, uniquely our ministry. There could be many copiers. There could be many people trying to imitate. But it is uniquely ours. Now, again, let me reiterate. We seek to create space for moments of clarity, always keeping in mind the inherent value of the people we may be in conflict. This is uniquely our ministry. Only we can provide the real context for reconciliation because of what God has done through Jesus. It is also the message we need to remind each other of and spread to the rest of the world. So there are two things that I want you to consider. These are exercises for you. Now, for us, if there is any conflict here in Gateway, whether in marriages or between relationships, Let's get that taken care of. We can't afford to have this sitting out there with us. We can't afford to be hypocrites. We cannot spread a message we don't live by. Now, if you need help with any conflict, let us know. There are resources and people available to help you get there. Now, the second thing I'd like for you to do, and this is the most important, We need to get out there and start making more new relationships, preferably with people who are not believers. 
See, there's one other way to head off conflict. Is that if we engage with people and help them to know their inherent value to us as well as to God, when conflict arises, the relationship is what we can focus on. That makes sense? Does it make sense? Okay. Now, when we take the time to simply get to know people, they feel valued. And again, if conflict arises, we get the opportunity to make the, the relationship the true issue and not the conflict. Now, we're down in the home stretch. I don't want you to leave with the mistaken idea that I'm suggesting that this is some type of formula that if applied will always produce the same result. Now, remember what I said earlier. This is how we address it. It's not necessarily how we solve it. We have our part to play, and the other person in the conflict has their part to play. Okay? Even though this was a good day for David, notice what the scripture says. Saul went home, but David and his men went to the stronghold. Let me give you a spoiler alert. David's going to have to go through this again with Saul. Okay? And better yet, David himself is going to have to be reminded about this. Everybody did not live happily ever after. And this was not an instant cure because this is not a fairy tale. This is real life. That is why Paul says this is a ministry. In other words, this is a service. Services tended to be needed over and over again. So don't let it stress you if you find yourself in conflict and having to go through this process over again. It's actually good for us. In fact, we will see that this allows us to strengthen our ministry and further the message. And at the end of the day, that's what we're here for, isn't it? I'm done. I didn't want to take, take too much of your time, but I hope you saw the power in this message. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I sit and wonder if you have called us to such a time as this, when the world is breaking loose and going wild, that you've called us up to step in with the grace that you have granted us and create moments, spaces for clarity amidst the violence and the craziness. We know that your power is able to overcome any scenario, but we need the courage and the strength to step in the gap. Help us, Father. There are those that we interact with that are in need of this message. There's those of us sitting here today that are in need of this message. Bless it to our hearts, Lord God, so that we might live it out in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.